Hi, Rachel. Hi, Anna. I'm excited for today. I think I'm going to say I'm excited for every episode as we start, <laughs> if I'm honest. I'm really excitable. Um, <laughs> but today we are planning to talk a little bit about our journeys and our relationships with love. And, and I really love podcast episodes like this, where it's the people talking about their personal journeys, personal stories, partly because I'm a little bit nosy and I just like to know what people's <laughs> lives are like. Yes. But also... And this is something that's particularly landed with me today. We don't often get to know about people's actual journeys. And so we feel like we're alone. Yeah. We feel like we're the only people going through these situations. And that isolation, I think, is a bit of a, a killer when it comes to keeping faith that it'll get better when you think you're the only person in the struggle. Yes. And so I kind of love telling people about all the times I've struggled and messed up and got things wrong <laughs> and like that it has been hard and that I've come through it and that I'm not perfect. I'm not there yet. But my relationship with love is so different in my mid 30s than it was in my mid 20s as compared to what it was in my teens. And I imagine like my sister says that her her 40s have been her best decade because she loves herself more and cares about other people's opinions less. Like, I am longing for my 40s because I really <laughs> can't wait to embrace that next level of self-love. Like, I just, I love sharing boldly about our stories. Me too. I'm not sure you have to wait until you're 40 either to embrace that, caring less about what other people think and loving yourself more. Just That's true. Challenge. Yeah. Respectful challenge. <laughs> I love it. Respectfully challenge away. <laughs> it's not like a, a a gate that you have to pass through. I'm 40 yeah. now. I get to care less about what other people think. <laughs> yeah. Another three years of beating myself up and going, God, why do I, why do people <laughs> yeah. judge me? But when I hit 40, it's going to be grand. <laughs> You're Just right. like that. Just... <laughs> <laughs> what a wonderful present that would be on your 40th birthday, though. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. And should we start with you? Do you want, do you want to... Start yeah. from the beginning. Tell us. Oh, the very beginning. So... Or from the middle, <laughs> if you want to start from the middle. Start from wherever is most appropriate for you. I, I'm going to start in the middle, just to be contrary. Yeah, why not? <laughs> the The year that changed my life, randomly, having just said, don't wait for a decade, was the year <laughs> I turned 30. <laughs> <laughs> oh, great. So it is like well, gates. Take note, yeah. listeners. It is like gates you have to pass through. Yeah. <laughs> Just to completely undo everything you've just said. <laughs> but that year for me was the year that I woke up. Mm. Before that point, I had been following the train tracks of how I was told I should be. So for those of you who aren't watching on the YouTube, who haven't seen this glorious visage before you, I am <laughs> a somewhat nerdy, somewhat punky, pink-haired, larger-than-life kind of coach. If you are looking for a coach who is very sleek and professional and corporate looking, that isn't me. <laughs> but in my 20s, that was me. I had a sleek brunette bob. I power dressed my way. I had my eyes on the next promotion. I got married young. I bought a house young. Like I really wanted to follow those tracks of this is how you prove to the world that you are lovable 
it was all centered for me in a deep-seated secret belief that I was unlovable, that at my very core, I was flawed. And there's so many reasons for that. So I am bisexual and have known that from a very young age, but grew up in a world where being LGBTQ plus is not seen as acceptable, is not seen as the norm. And actually in the UK, when we were growing up, it was illegal in schools to pretend that it was the norm. The Section 28 rules were very constrictive about how schools could address the issue of being LGBT. So I grew up thinking that was a flaw in myself. I now know that I was growing up neurodivergent as well. I didn't know that at the time, but that created another distance from me and my peers, another reason why I wasn't like everyone. And so I had trained myself to wear that mask, to adopt that personality. And it wasn't comfortable, but it still kind of felt authentic. And then in my 30s, it was the year that I really looked at my life and went, oh my God, this is so unloving. I have an autoimmune condition and... I got diagnosed in my late 20s. It was becoming more severe. I was burnt out. I was exhausted. I changed jobs thinking, oh, it's a situational thing. It's my job that's the problem. It was not my job that was the problem. (laughs) (laughs) I was in an abusive relationship at the time, which definitely wasn't helping. But as I said in the first episode, I, in some ways, was oblivious to that I was kind of enabling it to continue because one of the things we don't realize about domestic violence is that it's not about hitting someone a lot of the time a lot of the times it's sneakier it's more insidious it's about the psychological side the emotional side the coercive control and so I didn't I hadn't even noticed for a lot of my 20s that there was anything wrong with my relationship because in my head, being in a relationship was proof that I was lovable. Here is this person who has said, yes, you, I love you. They stood up in front of people and proclaimed that they love me. Like, my, that is just beautiful. How, how much more proof of lovability do you get than someone <laughs> willing to stand up in front of 80 other humans and declare it? And I was suicidal. <laughs> like, there's no final point to put on it I did not want to be here anymore because I was so desperately unhappy and really took to as the like the last few months of 29 were ticking down just took that time to look at my life and to go is this really what I want for the rest of my life am I committed to being this unloving towards myself, to holding myself to a career that wasn't serving me, a relationship that was harming me, a lack of authenticity of pretending to be this sleek corporate businesswoman when really it was a paper-thin mask that could have fallen off at any moment and quite often probably did. I doubt if any of my former co-workers are listening to this that they are particularly surprised when they found out that I was neurodivergent don't think I was very good at masking but that's where I was holding myself to and I had to change I had to find a route to more loving action and for me that route was coaching 
So I was 30 when I got my first coach. I went with the, like, the goal was just do a bit more self-care. That's really what I wanted to get out of my first lot of coaching was just to be able to do all those, like, adulting things, like feed myself effectively, make sure I showered on all the right days rather than going, oh, I, I could I could not wash my hair until tomorrow. I, I can get away with this level of grease. Like, <laughs> that that's the level I was at of just basic functioning. But what I discovered and what I think a lot of people discover as they go through coaching is that you come with one focus and actually the changes just blossom out. You You start changing aspects of your life that you never even knew you wanted to change. And so now I'm here six, nearly seven years later. I'm completely changed careers. I'm, I do coaching full time now. I am in a completely new relationship. I've got loving boundaries, respectful communication. But the, the thing that's changed all of that, the person that had to change was me. And that, I think, that allowing myself... Like some people say, and this is my question for you, Rachel, some people say that a personal development journey is about becoming someone new, about reinventing yourself, about that transformation. I think a personal development journey is about stripping back all the conditioning and rules that you've built up to protect yourself and all of these layers and layers of restrictive, protective masks that you've put on to actually rediscover who you actually are at the core of you what do you think I completely agree I completely agree with you there it's about becoming more of who you are rather Mm -hmm. than becoming somebody different it's about being okay with being you taking off all the masks you talked a lot about masking there it's taking off all of those and loving yourself as you are and presenting Mm -hmm. that to the world and being okay with all the different versions of yourself because I think I know that I'm a not completely. I am a different person now. The things that matter to me now are very different to the things that mattered to me three years ago before mm-hmm. my son was born. So I do feel in some ways completely different, but it's still me at the core. It's still that's still me. Yeah, I agree with mm. you completely. And it's so interesting, isn't it? Your priorities can shift with the the life that's happening around you. But I think remembering who we are at the core is both a real challenge and the most important thing that we'll ever do so this is the thing that I talk about a lot with my coaches which for the whole of my life I never thought it would be the analogy I chose is maths now <laughs> it's as surprising to me as it is to you Rachel that maths <laughs> is the analogy that I've chosen to explain my world philosophy (laughs) but here's what I think I think we spend our lives doing really bad maths that we take our estimations of our own value as a mathematical equation that we go here's the good things that I've done in my life and here's the bad things that I do in my life and we try and work out if the good outweigh the bad but our maths is really bad because we view the good things time by time so a good thing might be I help my neighbor carry the shopping in good thing 
I saw some litter on the street and I picked it up. Good thing. Plus one for me. But I forgot to message my sister-in-law on her birthday. Minus 10 for me, because that's a really bad thing. And that means that I am disorganized and unkind and all those things hold weight. So that's like minus 10, minus 20. Performative things get a plus one if they're good, but characteristics are massive subtractions. And we end up in value debt because you can never performatively do enough things you categorize as good in your head. If we even notice them. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I I like that. I didn't think I'd ever say I like math. I like your math (laughs) analogy. But I like that analogy. You're right. You're right. And we we are biologically made up to tune into the negative more than we are the positive. It's scientific Mm -hmm. fact or truth. And we forget all the positive things that we do and and the good things about us because we're not noticing them as much. Yeah. And that's where our histories come into it as well. So I talked a little bit earlier in the episode about being bisexual. We are told as bisexual people that we are greedy. We can't just have one gender. That we are slutty. (laughs) That male partners can't trust you around a woman. Female partners can't trust you around a man. We are told that we are deviant by homophobic people we are told all these things that we internalize whether we want to or not whether we stand in defiance of it or not there is some part of us receptive to at a cognitive bias level the negative messages that we hear about ourselves and we internalize them and we store them and we use them in our value calculations to come up with, I am unlovable because. And that's just one example of a a thing, a stick that I have in the past used to beat myself up with. There's something about all those things that you said then. that I think I remember hearing them when I was maybe a teenager, early 20s. Like They are all things that I maybe might have even said Mm -hmm. at, at that age. Because that's what ha- that's the environment that you're growing up in, isn't it? That's the belief. But now, yeah. looking back at that and hearing that now, I just think, well, how ridiculous are most of those things? Like mm-hmm. the the thing about you can't be trusted about around men or women. Like you can't be trusted. But if you can't be trusted, that's nothing to do with <laughs> you're bisexual or not. That's yeah. about whether you can be trusted or not. Like that. Mm. It's just so. The word that's popped into my head is immature. It's Im- they're immature perceptions and, and things to say. Yeah. And I don't know if I feel that way because of time or if I feel that way because of personal growth. or I, I don't know, but I heard them and just thought, dismissive. But like mm-hmm. you say, they're internalised, aren't they? When you're growing up, they're internalised as things that are negative, whether you believe them or not. Like all yeah. the messages that we get when we're younger about what women mm-hmm. should do. Yeah. And I think it's really fascinating that even the most staunch feminists that I know, when talking about people's like gender roles and what women should do, will be like, that's a load of nonsense. Women belong wherever they belong. Like a woman's place is at the kitchen, it's in the boardroom, it's in the operating theatre, it's in the halls of power. It's and yeah, 
probably internally gives herself a little bit of flack that if her husband has to cook dinner for the kids that night or that she's not spent enough time with her kids her kids get a bedtime story that guilt Mm. that shame because like you say we can reject it cognitively but if we've internalized it it's showing up in our value calculations it's something we use to say I am unlovable because yes and what what you just said about shame there so that me saying guilt the guilt that is the process that is what's happened over my self-development journey because that would have been shame Mm-hmm. And shame is that I am bad and the guilt is I did something bad. That, that Brene Brown's way of explaining it is so easy. Mm. And I now, I, I'm so happy that I went to guilt automatically rather than feeling shame around that. And I think that is something that everybody could work on. If you feel shame around something, mm. it shouldn't be shame because you are not bad. I do not believe in inherently bad people. I get a bit muddy when we start going into this maybe we could have a conversation about inherently bad versus versus inherently good at some point but yeah that distinction between guilt and shame I think is important as well yeah that was a big one for me in that like you say the difference between being bad and doing bad and there are times that I have crossed my moral boundaries again I'm not a perfect person I have snapped at my partner in the last 48 hours and I'm still a good person yep that is a a pretty audacious dynamic to hold and that's why when I was naming my coaching company I called it the audacious and because we need to hold these things together as equal one of my um, clients came up with a metaphor of rather than the value calculations of pluses and minuses of being a pie chart, that we are whole and complete with all these little bits of us. So the bit of me that is bisexual, the bit of me that is not naturally organized because of my ADHD, the bit of me that is loving, the bit of me that is a great cat mom, and the bit of me that picks my cats up and makes them dance because I saw something on TikTok that I found hilarious. The bit of me that is a a loving daughter who brings her parents and the bit of me that forgets to call her parents because she's too wrapped up in her own life. All of these bits are part of my pie chart and I'm whole and complete and lovable. I love that. I love the audacious and. It speaks to me so much and and I now try to use and in my self-talk. So if I have a... A negative self-talk thought I try and follow up with and a positive or and I am lovable or, mm. and I am still a good person yeah I think it's such a easy shift because you don't have to change the bit of yourself that you're going oh not sure about that bit you just have to remind yourself that it's only a piece of the pie <laughs> I like that as well but whenever you say pie I think about like actual pie like apple pie <laughs> <laughs> I do love a bit of actual pie as well. Yeah, which I like, but with custard and ice cream, it has to have both. Oh, of course. <laughs> <laughs> so what about you, Rachel, then? How, what was your journey to towards love like? Uh, my, my journey to love has been just lifelong. But from being young some of my earliest memories I have are of feeling inadequate and it was 
all related to the birth of my beautiful younger sister, who I now get on very well with and love her to bits and would not change her for the world. Mm. And my little four-year-old self really didn't understand why this screaming child had come into my life (laughs) and why my parents were not interested in playing with me anymore and why the people that were coming to the house were not coming to see me. Mm. (laughs) They were coming to see somebody else and they weren't playing with me. They were holding the baby, the thing that cried all the time because she had colic. And I, I felt unloved and unlovable. And that's a thing that I have then filtered for information to support it. It's a Mm -hmm. common cognitive bias that when you have a belief, especially a negative one, you will find things that support it and use that as evidence. And the things that go against it, you'll discount, you more more easily ignore. Mm -hmm. Um, And so all the way growing up, I just wanted to feel loved. I remember thinking, I can't wait till I get married. I'm going to have a big white dress and my husband's going to love me. And I was all about romantic love because they were the messages that I was getting from the media and and the films Mm. the Disney films that I was watching about being a princess and and getting married and um true love's kiss yes exactly yeah and love at first sight you know those those Mm. messages and not about getting to know somebody or not about the power of friendship love because I've had some incredible friendships I've got a friendship with one person who I've known since primary school um and we're still in touch now. There's been periods where we haven't been in touch, but she's so special to me. And there was a period where we didn't speak for a while. And that was that was worse than a breakup. Like that was mm. so hard for me. But I didn't, so at the time, I didn't value friendships or, or finding love in a different way. I just felt unloved by my family. I felt like my sister was the favourite because she was the youngest as well. So I was like just in the middle and felt that nobody was really interested in me and so I became the high achiever I found a way to get positive attention Mm. and I used it I was really good at spellings really good at English and I have achieved all the way through my life through teens and uh, until I got to the point where I didn't go to university so I think that was a that was a letdown Um, and I went off the rails slightly at that (laughs) at that age but I went back to university as a mature student at age 25 which oh, I don't think I, I was very mature <laughs> no I hated being called a mature student because I didn't feel it but I suppose in comparison like the, the yeah in comparison to some of my friends I probably was but that meant that in my relationships I accepted less than I deserved because I was so desperate to be loved and I believed in this love un- this unconditional love but I didn't think of it as our boundary conditional unconditional love it was unbounded unconditional mm-hmm. love you just love no matter what it doesn't matter what anybody does or says to you and then so back to high I'm jumping around a bit but back to high achiever I'm a registrar in public health I took a couple of years out of program to set up the South Yorkshire Violence Reduction Unit which was such a fulfilling time in my life it was hard work it was fun I got to work with some incredible people built a really amazing team worked with a a police superintendent who was just just brilliant to work with and bounce off and we had such good energy as a team and there was one thing that wasn't being talked about so violence reduction unit 
our focus was on the the wider determinants of violence. So what are all the things that cause violence? And then what are the things that cause those things? So thinking about poverty and, and housing and the place the, the places in the community where you live, what you grow up around, adverse childhood experiences, all that stuff. But love wasn't talked about at all. And it was this thing that was so important to me through all my life that how could we not be talking about the value of a romantic relationships, but also parental relationships. Mm-hmm. Like we were talking about attachment somewhat, but not not very much. And I I started trying to speak about love to people professionally, but that didn't go down very well because it's not seen as a professional thing, is it? Yeah, people automatically go to romance and sex when you mention love, and so it's not appropriate in the workplace, mm-hmm. and especially not when talking about children, apparently. So something I find really interesting is that in social work, they don't talk about love, they talk about attachment. And there was, at my last look, which was a couple of years ago now, there was only one social work code of practice that had the word love in it. Mm. Um, they'll talk about care, which is a component of love, as we heard in the last episode, but it's not the entirety of it. And I think it's so important to name something what it is. Mm. But it just seemed really hard. I'd got so much on and I just sort of parked love, put it to one side because it was on the too hard pile. And I, I knew it was important, but actually I'd got, I'd got stuff I'd got to deliver. I'd got deadlines and timescales and, yeah. and you get wrapped up in the, the everyday grind. And I decided at the end of that two years out of programme, because I had to choose, would I go back and continue my training to be a, a consultant in public health as a public health registrar? or would I accept the job permanently? Because I, I applied for it and was offered the job. And I chose to go back into training because I really value that learning and growth that I knew the public health specialty training scheme would give me because you do lots of different placements, et cetera. So again, it wasn't, it wasn't on the, in the forefront of what I was doing. It was on the back burner. I was learning new things. And then I met my husband and we had a beautiful whirlwind romance it was exactly like I imagined as a child that fairy tale met and fell in love and he's a really good man and we had a child so I've got my two-year-old and when he was born that's when this whole idea of love being important in a young person's life and in preventing violence and criminality really reared its head because I've never felt love like it like even with my husband where it was such a fairy tale and I I have so much love for him Ralph being born was just another level and he he will have so many opportunities that I know others don't have Mm. there there is an epidemic of child abuse in the world Mm. and the thought of it now that I'm a mother it used to upset me before but the thought of it now I'm a mother like breaks my heart like just I can feel myself getting upset now Mm. because there is so much more that we could do as a society to protect these children and young people who then go on because they've got limited choices to to make choices that keep them keep them alive and and help them survive but then that we criminalize and Mm. at what point do we decide that that child or young person that, that's made some choices that aren't pro-social, that are antisocial and, and has a criminal record, at what point do we decide then that they're not worth helping? Is it when they turn 18 and they're technically an adult? 
Is it when they're 25 and their brain most fully matured? Or, or is it when they're 14, actually, and they're being expelled from school? Or, you know, I, I feel so strongly about it because of Ralph and I knew that I needed to do something about it because yes I can focus on Ralph and he will have anything that he needs and and I will teach him to be kind and to love others and to care about society and to appreciate what he has but I need to do I need to do more so that's where love socially came came back into my mind off the too hard pile from when I was in the VRU I plucked it up again Mm-hmm. And started thinking about this concept of social love. I, I came across Bell Hooks. That was through a colleague of mine, Will Mason at the University of Sheffield. He introduced me to Bell Hooks and her book, All About Love. And this concept of the love ethic that we talked about in the last episode and, and social love, looking at how organisations and systems, rather than individuals, because you can take action as an individual, but let's not forget that we're operating with very limited power, whereas mm-hmm. our public systems the the people who make decisions about our lives have a lot more power to be able to make decisions that are informed by social love and that Mm. that enable loving action for the good of other people in society for the good of ourselves for the good of community and and environment as well so that's what I'm doing now that that's that's where I'm at I'm trying to bring this idea of social love love ethic everyday love whatever you want to call it to the public sector as well as remembering that we have to love ourselves as well because what you were saying in the last episode about self-love a lot of me being able to do that and to care for Ralph means that I have to take time to fill my own cup like Mm -hmm. I I can't operate from burnout I tried to do that when I first went back to work after maternity leave and I did burnout and I caught a virus and then have now have a post-viral condition chronic pain condition that is under control at the moment actually and I'm starting to think maybe I'm recovered which would be amazing like mm-hmm. if it doesn't happen again so you know a few more months and I'll think yeah I'm there but that was really tough as well another lesson mm-hmm. in overachieving overstriving and not actually caring for me mm-hmm. oh and I relate to that so hard in terms of managing my own chronic health conditions in that they are my biggest teacher in god yeah when I don't stay rooted in self-love my body goes hang on just a minute here like you need to slow down lady (laughs) rest rest I've actually got on my I don't know if it'll put it the right way around but I've got a little I deserve to rest card Mm. that I pulled this morning I think that is just such a good reminder so I've got it propped up here because believing that we deserve rest Mm-hmm. and re- replenishment and going back to that guilt if I sit down during the day before my little boy is in bed I feel guilty that I'm sat down that either mm-hmm. I'm not playing with him or interacting with him in some way or I'm not doing something around the house yeah oh su- such a commonly expressed thing that mum guilt that <laughs> I should be doing xyz ABC. I have a little uh, pin on my jacket that says rest is for rebels. <laughs> I like that. And I love it. I keep it there as a, like a conversation starter because in this modern capitalist driven society, we are judged by our productivity. Yeah. 
our value is like our worth comes from mm. what we produce. And yeah. actually, I like that rest, rest is rebellious because actually loving yourself is an act of rebellion. Oh, God, yeah. Yeah. Especially in that, in that society that you describe that is so negative and critical of everybody. Not just women, because there's criticism mm. of, of men as well and how, you know, you must be you must be strong, you must be a provider, you must be X, Y, Z, you can't be, you can't be soft, you can't mm. show emotion. Yeah, the, the messages that everybody gets are so contradictory that loving yourself is an act of rebellion and one that we should all be undertaking. Yes, couldn't agree more. <laughs> as another slight act of rebellion, just as we're wrapping up, I'm going to do some shameless self-promotion for us both here, Rachel. Because Go for it. <laughs> are featured in a book about change makers, aren't we? We are. Yeah, so excited. if you check out the description of either the podcast or YouTube, depending on how you're consuming our content, you will find a link to purchase the book that we are focused in, Impact, where we share our stories, we share what we've learned from them, featured alongside a host of other amazing change makers as well. But what I really loved about being part of the book project is the all these kind of conversations it's thrown up, all the self-insight it's given me to to think about how I show up in my changemaker role, grounded in self-love and social love and all those different aspects of it. So if you want to hear more about Rachel and my lives, check out our book. <laughs> <laughs> it's well worth a read. It was a neat segue that I don't think anyone will notice. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> so the next time we said we were going to be talking about empathy and I think that leads on really nicely from what you were just talking about there Rachel I was really struck by when you were saying about when do we decide about people when do we make that judgment to me that links in so so neatly with the concept of empathy and putting ourselves in someone else's shoes so should we pick up the conversation there let's do it thanks brilliant Well, thank you for listening, everyone, and we'll see you next time. Bye.